Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. I'm inviting you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. I'm doing kind of an introductory message to this book this morning. And we just read a few minutes ago in our service, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, where Paul introduces kind of his subject here. This book of Galatians is a wonderful book. It's, it's the first book that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, after his first missionary journey when he was in the area of Galatia to the, the Gauls and those who, who lived up there. And he comes back and finds out that there are people perverting the gospel of Christ that he preached. And so he uh, strikes very uh, definitely against these false teachers. It's such a great book, some have called it the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty that we have in Christ. In the Reformation days, they called this the battle cry of the Reformation. Martin Luther wrote a very famous commentary on Galatians. I have that, by the way, and it is. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, some have called it the Declaration of Independence of Christian Salvation. It is what uh, declares that we have salvation by faith. And so it's important uh, not only in the first century, in Paul's day, in the, in the 16th century, in Luther's day, but it's important in our day too because there's a lot of different voices about the gospel in the day in which we live. So what's wrong with the world today? <laughs> you have time <laughs> to, to tell me what that is? I think what's wrong with the, with the world today is abbreviations. That's what's wrong with it. Abbreviations. D-E-I, diversity, equity, inclusion. E-S-G, environmental, social, governance. C-R-T, critical race theory. A-I, artificial intelligence. T-H, transhumanism, and of course there's always LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, etc., etc. I say it's, the, it's these uh, abbreviations and of course what they stand for. Do we, need, do we need a declaration of independence as Christian people to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We do uh, today. And I think the world's uh, favorite word, evidently, is systemic, isn't it? Everything is systemic. There's systemic racism, systemic oppression, capitalism, democracy. Well, let me tell you, there's only one thing in the world today that is truly systemic, and that is sin. Sin resides in every human being. It is in our nature. We're fallen creatures. Every one of us is a sinner, regardless of your race, color, creed, language, or whenever you lived. Uh, we are sinners before God. So is God really in control? Is he in control today? We ask that, and we always answer in the affirmative, but I think sometimes we wonder, you know, how we should answer that and how God is in control. So I will say without apology, yes, of course, God is in control. How do I know that? God cannot lie. And the Bible is God's word. And the Bible says we have a future. We have a future that God is going to control. 
There's a future for those who are lost, a future for those who are saved. There's a future for this earth, and the Bible says it will happen, and I believe that it will. I heard this week somebody say about remarks like that, well, isn't that circular reasoning? I mean, after all, we say, uh, God says this, and somebody says, how do you know that? And we say, because God's word says this. And then they say, well, how do you know God's word is true? And we say, because God said it. <laughs> and then I heard someone give an answer to that and say, all reasoning is circular reasoning. It goes from one human being to the other. There's a great passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that says, when God could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, because there's none greater than God. And if God starts that circular reasoning, then it is true because he is God eternally. And, by the way, he is the first cause. Nothing existed before him, so what he says comes from truth and from him. I titled this message today, Two Kinds of Righteousness, because God says in his word there are two kinds of righteousness. There is a self-righteousness and there is the righteousness of Christ. The book of Galatians is going to speak to that. There are many different ways of viewing self-righteousness, and you see that on your outline that I have in your bulletin, but there are really only two kinds. There are those first five ways, and then there is the sixth one, and that is the righteousness of Christ. In that great uh, preface to his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther called these two things active righteousness and passive righteousness. And when he said active righteousness, he meant you try to do it, don't you? You try to be active and earn your own righteousness. And then he says there's passive righteousness, and that is you can do nothing, but Jesus Christ can do everything. You can't save yourself. You have no work that uh, merits your salvation, but Jesus Christ can do it. One is a salvation of works. The other is a salvation of faith. And think about it. When Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin came into the world. All their trust was in God. All that they had came from God. They didn't have to worry about anything. Their conscience was clear. God supplied everything. And then the fall came, and Satan came to Eve and said, you know, God's kind of selfish. He's withholding things from you. There are things that you could have and you could do and you could decide on, and he's trying to keep you from doing that. And she fell for that. She sinned. And Adam sinned with her. And then after the sin, it was, I want, I need, and I will have. And that's where human beings is, have been ever since. She saw the tree, that it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was a tree to make one wise. So she took it, and she ate it, and so did Adam. And that's been our problem ever since. This fulfills me. This expresses me. This pays me back. This avenges me. This frees me. This esteems me. This exalts me. This makes me feel good. All of that is, this is what I want, and that is the righteousness of self, the self-righteousness that cannot save us. So I want you to notice as we go to our outline, and if you have a bulletin, uh, you have these uh, points in your bulletin, or if you're watching on the screen, you see them there. Notice that I have five L's. I kind of had to keep the L's going. So I, I have five L's, and then number six is the righteousness of Christ. 
fallen nature will worship. Every person in this world is worshiping something. They are worshiping because they're made in God's image and they're made to worship, but until they're born again, they're worshiping the wrong thing. And in the book of Galatians, I think there are references to these five, and of course, there are many more. And so I want to show you these five things that people follow, and we see them even in various verses in the book of Galatians. We used verses 6 through 9 as our text, but we'll go to a number of different verses. First of all, there is the righteousness of law. This is the main thing that Paul writes about in the book of Galatians. I know that in the Sunday school class, in the book of, of Romans this morning, we were talking about very similar things. In this little book of Galatians, the word law, namas, appears 32 times in this book. And all of them, except maybe one or two, always refer to the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. There is a certain righteousness that people think they have from the law. But notice the verse references that I have here. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. Even we, Paul says, have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He talks about a man, he talks about we, and then he talks about everyone in this world. Nobody can be justified by the law. It's interesting that Paul was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. Look at chapter 1 and verse 13 and 14. You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And by the way, he thought he was doing God a, a, a service by doing that. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But he was lost. He was unsaved until he came to the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? Because the law can't bring you the righteousness of Christ. There's a certain righteousness. There's a certain way to worship, and people love to worship these days. But what is the law? The law in chapter 4 is our schoolmaster. It's a tutor. It's a governor. It's, if you will, a babysitter to bring us to Christ. It can't save itself. It can't become your parent itself, but it can bring you to Christ. I want you to notice chapter 3 and verse 19 then. And again, if we study all the way through this book of Galatians, we'll see these things in more detail. What purpose then does the law serve? 319. I want you to notice it has a beginning and an ending. It was added because of transgressions. When was it added? Well, uh, 1444 or so, when they came out of Egypt, uh, they came to, the, to Mount Sinai and God added the law. They didn't have it before then. It didn't exist before then. It was added because of transgressions. It is a way that you realize you're a sinner. As we know, can you keep the law? No. If you're guilty in one point, are you guilty of all? Yes. Added because of transgressions. And then notice, until the seed should come. Notice the capital S on the word seed. When is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, uh, then the law was done. So it had a beginning, it had an end, because 
it can't save. And it served its purpose. It came and then left. Keeping the law, folks, is true legalism. I always try to use the word legalism in a, in a biblical sense. I'm not just talking about somebody who has some rules that I don't like. I'm, when I say legalism, it is something I do to try to save my soul. Or it's something I do to try to keep my soul saved. If you are working for your salvation by doing something, by being religious, by keeping that law or any other law, then that is true legalism. There's a certain thing inside us that I would call a love of religion. We just like to worship worship. We like to be doing it. We, we want to be performing it. We want to just kind of go through the motions. It does us good. And there was no one better at it than the Jews. And they still are that way, many of them. And so Judaism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Islam, Mormonism, and I say even the contemporary church today that just loves the, the show of it all, loves the performing of it all, loves to do it, makes religion a, a law of righteousness. And so the book of Galatians talks about this, and there's much more to be said about it, but you understand that that was what was happening to the Jew, and that's why Paul, after preaching in Galatia, preaching righteousness through Jesus Christ, the Jews stoned him and left him for dead. That's what we think of your faith in Christ. And then when he got back to Jerusalem, he heard that these false teachers had come in, and now they were perverting the, the true gospel that he preached. He writes this letter back to them and says, let them be accursed, and they will be without the faith in Christ. So there's a righteousness of law. Secondly, there's a righteousness of love. Does this sound odd to you? Because I'm saying it's a false righteousness. There's a way to worship love. There's a way to, to uh, say, well, I just love everybody. I'm a loving person and everything, so I'm okay before God. It's a righteousness of love. I take it here from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 and verse 14. Do I persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. And that's what many people are doing. I just want you to love me. I just want to do you good. I want to do something for you. You do something for me. We love one another. We're good Christian people, aren't we? Not necessarily. That's a righteousness that comes out of your own love. In verse 14, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond Many of my contemporaries in my nation being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. You know, folks, it's a natural thing to love. Again, because we're human beings and, and we're relational type of people. It's a natural thing. But love has to be within God's boundaries. You know that the New Testament has four different words for love. Because three of them are very natural. Storge is a family type of love. You love your father, you love your mother. You love your children, you love your grandchildren. That storge kind of love is a natural kind of love. Can't, because you love in that way, are you a Christian? No. Everybody loves in that way. Eros is that erotic or that is falling in love with one another. You, you, you fall in love with someone you're attracted to and they fall in love with you. Does that give you righteousness before God? No, but it's a natural thing to have. 
Philos is that friendship, love, and we all have friends, and, and we like them, and they like us. Does that give you righteousness before God? No. You know how God loved us? With agape love. Agape love is something that asks for nothing in return. It just loves that way. And that, you know, it's interesting that the word agape doesn't appear in the Greek language before the New Testament. And the Greek language goes back a uh, uh, thousand uh, and more years before the New Testament. It came along late, and some people believe it came along because God needed that word to describe God's love to us. He gave his son for us. We can give him nothing in return, no good works, nothing to return that saves us. He saves us by his love. Well, we try to please men, don't we? We try to please people. We want to help them. We want to like them and be liked by them. We want to teach others. We want to learn from others. We want to uh, be uh, seen as good people. We even want to be eulogized when we die by people, you know. Uh, I don't know how many people have been eulogized into heaven, but uh, somebody, a lot of people have tried. You know what Jesus said? To Peter, do, now, Peter, do you love me more than these guys do? Do you love me more than them? Peter had to say, well, I denied you. I don't, I'm not sure that I can. You know what Jesus said in Luke 14 in a parable? If a man doesn't come to me, and he used the word hate here, and that just means you've got to love me more than that. And hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, and his own life also. If you don't put me before them, you cannot be my disciple. The word dunatos with an A in front of it. You are unable to be a disciple. The righteousness of love cannot save you, folks. And just because you're a loving person and just because you have all the natural loves inside you and you want to love others, that doesn't make you a Christian. Paul's going to talk about that in this book also. And then in a very serious way, he's going to say, thirdly, there's a righteousness of lust. And of course, he's going to, in, in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, let me read these verses to you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. There could be more. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice, religiously practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that people even involved in these lustful practices think that they are doing what they need to do. They are worshiping themselves. They are giving themselves what they want. This is what I want. This is what love uh, or life uh, offers me, and therefore I will have it, and I will do it. And in that sense, they are following their own self-righteousness, and it comes out in these ways. I have said this to you before in this progression of thought, but this is a biblical thing. Lust comes first. Lust is epithumia. Epa means short and thumia means desire. Desire is a, a normal thing. 
If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work, it can be good or bad. But epithumia is a short desire. I want this now. I want this satisfaction now, at this moment, and I will have it. And in that sense, you become the master of your own fate. You become the master of your own soul. You're telling yourself what is right. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. But lust becomes covetousness. I want this. I want her. I want him. I want that. And that covetousness means you want something that doesn't belong to you. And that's why it's called covetousness. And then the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. And that thing becomes an idol to you. When that thing becomes an idol to you, it leads you to death. James would say it like this. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. No wonder Paul hit this subject hard in this book and many other books. And, of course, he did in so many uh, of his other writings. You can find lists of things like this all over the New Testament as Paul wrote them. Because the Roman world and the Greek world and, unfortunately, even in the Jewish world, it was full of things like this. I gave you the letters L, G, B, T, Q, because those are things now that are in our face today. But I'm telling you this, they're all the same thing. It's all the lust of the flesh outside of marriage. It is all what I want and my flesh wants, and they, they invent ways to get it. I'm going to take a minute and ask you to go with me back to the book of Leviticus and chapter 18. I'm going to show you something that may even be shocking to you, but it's in what the Old Testament calls the holiness code. Leviticus, in the middle of the Mosaic law, was written for the Levites to uh, take care of and judge these sins of people even within Judaism. And then, so in Leviticus 18 through 20, we have this what's called the holiness code for Israel because this was their problem. So I want you to notice, and I'm going to scan real quick, but then zero in on a few verses. Verse 6 says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him, notice, to uncover his or her nakedness. That is the biblical way of saying having sexual relations with someone or something, to uncover the nakedness. You'll find it in almost every verse of this chapter. But I want to just scan and show you why, how this is wrong in so many different ways. And we find people today as well as back then inventing these ways and practicing in these ways. And this is what God thinks of it. And so, by the way, it, it begins in verse 7, and it gets more serious as you go down the list. As you go farther and farther down, the sins get more of an abomination before God. Verse 7, the nakedness of your father. You get the idea of what he's saying. You'll not discover the nakedness of your father. In verse 8, your father's wife. Verse 9, your sister. Verse 10, your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. Verse 11, your father's wife's daughter. Verse 12, your father's sister. 
Verse 13, your mother's sister. Verse 14, your, bro your father's brother, his wife, she is your aunt. Verse 15, your daughter-in-law. Verse 16, your brother's wife. Verse 17, your son's daughter and your daughter's daughter. Is it getting bad enough for you? And we're not done yet. Verse 18, uh, basically your wife's sister, her sister. Also, you shall not approach, verse 19, a woman to uncover her nakedness in her customary impurity, her period, in other words. Verse 20, you shall not lie with your neighbor's wife. Now, I want you to notice when we get to verse 21, we're almost to the end of the list, which is verse 23. Notice these three things at the end. Verse 21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. They actually gave their, their small children as human sacrifices to the god Molech. That's in this list of how you treat children. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is abomination. Homosexuality is almost at the end of this list. It's called abomination in the singular, which is the only place in the holiness code where something is given its own singular abomination, homosexuality. What is lower than that? Verse 23, you shall not mate with any beast, bestiality. To defile yourselves with it, nor within shall any woman stand before a beast to mate with it. It is perversion. Only one thing worse than homosexuality, because it imitates the last one. And so, folks, this is the holiness code. This is why you have a list like we have in Galatians and in other books of the New Testament. And by the way, when you finish that chapter from verse 24 to verse uh, 30, you'll find these are abominations. Verse 27, all these abominations of men in the, land, in the land have done. Verse 29, these abominations. And verse 30, the abominable customs that are committed before you. That's what God thinks of these things. What am I saying then back in the book of Galatians when, when I talk about these things? Sexual relation is designed to be within marriage and only within marriage. Hebrews 13 says that the marriage bed should be kept undefiled. And everything outside of that is abomination and belongs in that list in the holiness code. And yet we have in our generation and they've had in every generation, we've ha we have people inventing these things and more for the same reason. It's a terrible thing when you think about it. Now, when I say a righteousness of lust, then what do, I, excuse me, what do I mean by that? This kind of perversion is the most basic expression of self-worship. I will have it. I will do it. It is what I want, what I need, however you define it, regardless of what God says. For these few minutes anyway, I'm an atheist. I do what I want. I worship myself. And so it is involved, I think, in a righteousness of lust. And there are many people in our world that fall to this. Read Romans chapter 1, and you will find this same uh, degradation going down to the, from the top to the very bottom of that list, and this is what it ends in, in Romans chapter 1. All right, enough on that. Number four, 
is a righteousness of lawlessness. He's going to hit on this too. And so in 5.13, he says, And you, brethren, have not been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That is, no law at all. Well, I have liberty from the law then. I have liberty to do what I want to do. How many people today, even in the name of Christianity, practice their sin in the name of liberty in Christ? I have liberty to do these kinds of things. So liberty to them means no law applies to me. I can literally do whatever I want to do. Peter in 2 Peter 2.13 said it this way, they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceiving. What does that look like? I, I'm talking about lawlessness, folks. I'm talking about people who say, I'm throwing off all law. I'm throwing off all righteousness. God doesn't own me. There is no God. There is no word of God. There's no law that applies to me. I can do whatever I want. I think that's what lawlessness is in the United States right now and around the world. What does it look like? Vengeance. Cain killed Abel out of vengeance. Lamech killed more than that out of vengeance. Hatred, the Bible says, is murder. I hate one another and I can take their life rioting is lawlessness, it's stealing, it's lack of self-control, and it has no restraints on you at all. I can break whatever I want to break, take whatever I want to take, hurt whoever I want to hurt. It's called rioting, and Peter speaks about it in his book too. After all, what did Satan say to Eve? God wants to put restraint on you. God is limiting you. You ought to be able to do that. Why does he say, eat all of these trees, and then he says, you can't do that? God has some kind of restraint on you. And so Eve said, you know, you're right. I ought to be able to be able to do what I want to do. I ought to have liberty. And she thought that way, and evidently so did, so did Adam also. And so this lawlessness has come into this world. Satan said, it's oppressive, isn't it? It's restrictive, isn't it? It's a police state, as a matter of fact, to keep you from doing what you want to do. We speak a lot today about the rule of law. I think Gordon did in the lesson uh, last hour, too. The rule of law, someone said uh, that law without a penalty is merely good advice, and that's what we have in this country right now. We have a lot of good advice, but I don't think we have any laws uh, that stop. There's, there's two ways to stop lawlessness, and one is by force, and the other is by self-control. Force has to be done in a sinful world, and that's why we have armies, that's why we have police forces, that's why we have laws that have to be controlled, and it takes force to do it. It's much better to do it by self-control. Our constitution in this, in this uh, country was basically built on that. A Christian people will have self-control and will not need force to make them do the right thing. And yet we failed in that, haven't we? Every society has fallen for that reason. They cannot control themselves, so they need force to control it, and they're taken over by somebody. That's the history of human beings. So there's a righteousness to lawlessness. I can do what I want. I'm my own master. I'm my own God, and I will do what I want to do. 
And then lastly, of the five L's I have, I called it land because I ran out of words and I had to come up with some words. Well, what I, mean, what I mean by this is there's a righteousness that worships the earth and worships the creation more than the creator. And so I have here in chapter 4 and verse 8, but then indeed, when you do not know God, you did not know God, you served those who which by nature are no gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements from your pagan past to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years and many other things of the earth too. Romans 1.25 simply said, You exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, the creation more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Cain's offering was that way, wasn't it? Abel brought a blood offering like God asked him to, but Cain said, No, I'll make something from the ground. I'll bring that. You know how we worship the earth today? There's a word called animism. You, you, you remember that word if you hear it, animistic, something that is animistic. Animism, by definition, is giving a soul to some, to some inanimate object. The earth doesn't have a soul. There is not a mother earth. Sorry to inform you about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, eagles that fly in the air don't have souls. They're not smarter than you are. The gray wolf isn't smarter than you, and neither is the whale. Things don't have soul. So to animate something that doesn't have a soul and pretend that it has a soul is animism. You've animated the inanimate object, and we do it all the time, and people are worshiping this earth. We have in our day from environmentalism to evolution, the worshiping of the atoms to the worshiping of the creature. How, how, men, how long have men worshiped astrology? They built a tower to, in Babel to try to reach to the heavens so they could worship the stars from the top of that planet. And so whether it's Venus, the, the queen of heaven, or Saturnalia, or the solstices, or, or all of those things, uh, we have worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. Somebody says, well, I, you know, I just want to be alone with nature. I just want to be there and, and worship that way. There's no righteousness in that. There's no righteousness in worshiping this earth. There's no righteousness in worshiping the creature more than the creator. Well, I just like to be in the wilderness. I worship God that way. Maybe you can, but you can't find righteousness there. I like, I like the outdoors. I like to, to be in those kinds of places too. But don't you like to be there and say, look what God hath made? Look what God has done? You don't do it as something that you worship. So there's a righteousness, I say, of the land also. And this little book of Galatians speaks to all of those and some others. It's amazing what Paul had to address when he had to address these kinds of sins in the first century and what we have, and to even a greater degree, in the 21st century. But I, of course, want to add number six. And number six is there's only a righteousness, a true righteousness in Christ. 2.20, a very familiar verse in the book of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live, what? By the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, a substitution, a vicarious sacrifice, a regenerating Savior. That is where righteousness comes from. And he is going to say, not by the law, not by the land, not by love, not by lust, not by any of these kinds of things. It comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. Philippians 3, 8, and 9 says it this way. Yet indeed, Paul says, I also count all these things lost. By the way, being a Jew, being a Pharisee, Keeping the law as best I can, I count them all but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Luther called it passive righteousness, meaning you can't earn it. You can't give anything to God so that he has to give you back righteousness. It means that there's nothing in you from the worst of things to the best of things that can merit your salvation. In the human heart is only sin, and you need God's help. You must have his righteousness. And if you have it, and once you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to him and saying, I'm a sinner, I can do nothing, I cannot save myself, I need you to save me. Here's my sin, if you'll give me righteousness, I'll take it. And the gift of God is yours. That is the way we receive it. And then you rest. Then your conscience is secure. Then you say, I know I have eternal life. I know God saves me and not myself. I know he will save me and not me. Everything that happens to me, God is in control of. It's a wonderful feeling. You did nothing, you do nothing, and you cannot do anything yet in the future. Hebrews eleven six 6 says what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't please him in these other ways of righteousness. But the paradox of, of Hebrews 11 is that then, by faith, these great men were able to do all of those things. By faith and resting in Him and receiving His power and receiving His assurance, then you can do all of these things. We work out our, own, our, our faith, and Christ works in us to do and to will God's good pleasure. So, folks, Luther gave this great illustration of his own faith, and he was a monk of a monk. He was a, a Roman of a Roman. He believed in that system until he studied this book of Galatians. And when he studied this book, he realized he had to let go of himself and cling only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave this illustration of a great ship on the, on the ocean, and the ship represented the Roman church. And he said, I'm like a man that fell overboard, and they threw me a rope, and they said, well, as long as you hang on to this rope, I'll pull you to the land. The church is going to pull you to safety. And Luther said, faith is letting go of the rope. No, Jesus Christ will save me. In a common illustration, it's more like, you know, somebody's drowning out in the water, and a lifeguard has to swim out there. What's the lifeguard have to tell him? Quit fighting me. Quit trying to do it yourself. 
Just let me take you and I'll save you. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us. Let go of your self-righteousness. Let go of all of those things that you try to please yourself with. You try to save yourself. And give him your self-effort. Give him your sin. Give him your soul. And rest in him. That's salvation by Christ. And that's the only salvation that can save. I want you to stand with me. We're going to stand and sing a song here in the auditorium. And maybe you've been listening online and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. You could come to God right now but with your sin and say, I need the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I want to be saved. If you call upon him with a sincere heart, he hears you and you will be saved. So let's bow our heads too. And as we prepare to sing a song, let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Let's pray together. Father, this message... Uh, has been a little bit of everything because your word touches on so many things in our lives. And Father, we see ourselves in these verses. We see ourselves without Christ, struggling to do it ourselves, struggling to have what we want in this world. Oh, until we came face to face with Jesus Christ and saw his righteousness and saw what we needed and realized how we were sinners and you saved us. And so, Father, I pray our world needs this message so much today. I pray, Lord, that wherever it's preached by good men who preach, that you would save souls today. And, Father, maybe within the sound of my voice from these meager words out of the book of Galatians, that the power of your word would not be in word only, but in power and in might and a good conscience. And so, Father, bless now as we sing. Bless, Father, as we, as we think about these things. Have your will and your way in our life. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. Our invitation is always open as we sing. I'm here at the front if you need to come. Or when our service is closed and others are leaving, I'm still at the front. Uh, come and say, this is my need. Let's open God's word and make sure we meet that need. All right? Gordon's going to come and lead us in this song.